0: If we don't call this episode The Farm Bill is a Giant Corn Fritter, I quit.
1: <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Dara Lynn and Sarah Cliff. We are ready to talk about the farm bill. I have mostly been humming to myself. I've heard
2: you have a song about the farm bill, Matt. Yeah, but this is well, you know,
1: it's not. This is not the daily podcast. But you know, I've just been been humming to myself. Speaker Ryan had a farm bill, e i e i o, and in that farm bill, he had some work requirements, e i e i o.
2: And I just want to say, this is not for show. I sit next to Matt in our newsroom, and he has been quietly singing this to himself for about a week or so. I'd say. Snap cut here and a snap
1: cut there. (laughs) Here cut there cut everywhere. snap. Napcot speaker Ryan had a farm. Anyway, if if
0: I drop out of this conversation at any time during this podcast, please assume that I'm working on a version of that that scans better.
1: God damn it.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's some serious shame. I have an overdeveloped sense of scansion. Matt knows this very well. It's one of my like weird quirks along with my hatred of alliteration.
1: You know, if you were a parent, Dara, you might appreciate that sometimes you need to be able to just modify children's songs a little bit on the fly. But what we're here to talk about, the
2: reason we have this song, (laughs) is the Farm Bill.
1: The Farm Bill, which has some work requirements.
2: It does. So we have a lot going on. There's a lot going on the Farm Bill. We're also going to talk about heroin later in this episode, a really good research paper that our colleague Ramon Lopez brought to our attention. But first, we are going to start with, you know, where really the action is these days in Washington, which is the farm bill that has been moving through the House. We'll start seeing some movement in the Senate soon. And we're going to start with the part that I think has gotten the most attention at this point, which are some big changes to the SNAP program, the food stamps program, that have been proposed in the House bill that have passed through Um, a committee there and that are pretty roundly opposed by Democrats. So I thought it'd be helpful first to kind of lay out, like, what is going on there. And one of the things when I was getting ready for this episode that really surprised me was that SNAP now represents 80 percent of farm bill spending. The farm bill is, by and large, a food stamps bill. So any changes you're going to make to food stamps are going to be a pretty major part of the bill. And the big thing that's going on here, the thing that has gotten – the most attention is the idea of making a much stricter work requirement in the snap program this really reflects a lot of things we've seen from the trump administration in welfare in medicaid this idea that people if they are going to receive a government benefit they have to show that they are working there actually already are some work requirements in the snap program but they are very easy to get waivers from that every state except for delaware for some reason has received a waiver at some point from SNAP's current work requirements, which um, suspend the work requirement in areas where there aren't insufficient jobs. And states have used this pretty liberally because right now – and this surprised me a little bit learning about it too – SNAP actually does – have a three-month limit for individuals who are not employed, um, for a certain category of adults who are not employed. But states have constantly applied for waivers. So essentially what this does is it makes it a lot harder to apply for those waivers, and it expects a lot more people to be hit with these work requirements. So the work requirements in the Republican bill – They are targeted at adults between 18 and 59 who are not disabled, pregnant, or caring for another, for a child. Most people think this is about 5 million to 7 million current SNAP enrollees, and these people would be required to show proof of working or volunteering about or doing some kind of job training 20 hours a week in order to continue receiving their SNAP benefits. One of the other things it does is um, really scale up money for work training. So it brings right now about $90 million per year are, sp- are spent on providing work training to SNAP recipients. Washington State has apparently done some interesting things with that money. The Republican bill would up that to a billion dollars a year in just three years. So that's a huge change, and I think there's some questions about whether the infrastructure would be there, like what would happen to that billion dollars a year? There's also questions about it? like the scope of that. A billion dollars sounds like a lot of money, but
0: when you're dividing it among the like millions more people who are you're now funneling into that work program. I saw one estimate from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which is a left-leaning think tank that I we're probably going to be relying on a lot during this podcast because they've been really the authorities on income support programs, and they did the math that. Given that you are going to have to shift about 3 million people into those job programs, if you divide that 1 billion, you end up with $28 per participant per month, which is maybe not so much
2: as 1 billion. And just to layer on top of this, the last time the USDA evaluated these um, training programs was in 1994. And they found that there was no significant impact on participants' wages, hours, or job retention. So there's some reason to question what will happen to this money. But that's essentially what the the big changes that are happening in SNAP under the House bill. It's a much stricter work requirement paired with this bigger fund for these work training programs that we're not totally sure how well they're going to work. The other thing about effectiveness that
0: that I want to note is that it's not like – You know, the data we have on this stuff is mostly from the 90s, but it's not because there has been no effect to measure it since then. Like... A bunch of states are currently in the midst of pilot programs that were funded by the last farm bill to test what various like, you know, SNAP requirements and programs would look like. And literally, Congress last time around said, we're going to fund these programs to see what works and to see what actually helps SNAP beneficiaries get back to work. And then this time around is going, well, instead of waiting for those results to come in, we're going to just assume that what really helps is forcing people to work and giving them $28 a month in job training, which like doesn't seem like the best spending of 2014 Congress's money.
1: Here's what I will say about this. You know, something that we saw, I I think, from the 1990s experience with creating work requirements for cash welfare assistance is that at least superficially, I think welfare reform worked fine in the late 1990s, right? That what you had was you had a combination of a strong labor market, so there was a good pull of people into the workforce with a kind of push from the welfare reform program and if you look at where the economy is right now, right um, the unemployment rate's low. we continue to be adding about hundred thousand a little bit more jobs per month, which is faster than the underlying rate of population growth. We're seeing the labor force participation rate of people over the age of 55 has been growing like quite a quite a bit you know indicating that the economy sort of is like wanting people to stay in the labor force longer, we're seeing it rising for prime-age workers a little bit. We're seeing for young workers, it's still at a, at a lower level than it's been historically because more people are in school, but, but it's going up. And so if in 2018, you pass a law that takes effect in 2019 and we continue adding the 100,000 jobs a, a month or so, I bet these work requirements will quote-unquote work you know, like people will go into the twenty-eight dollars a month job training program, and they will come out like with with a job. I bet, like whether the training works or not, right? Because we we really are at a moment in time when kind of like shoving people off a ledge, I think is is gonna work for the majority of the people who are shoved, right? The problem with the switch from AFDC to TANF was that. If you want
0: to elaborate on those acronyms. For-
1: Sorry. for So aid to families with dependent children was like the old cash welfare and then was changed to temporary assistance for needy families, which had work requirements, blah, blah, blah. A minority of the people wound up cut off and in really, really dire straits, although it, it worked fine for most people. And then the problem was the economy doesn't stay good forever. Right. And in two thousand one, we had a, a mild but long-lasting recession. In two thousand seven, we had a severe and long-lasting recession. And the whole sort of cash assistance program had withered away by that time. And and food stamps to an extent grew as a as a supplement for that, as something that, you know, helped keep people alive through a period of scant work. And if you repeat the whole exercise, I mean a, a big fear I would have about this is that you could pass something along the lines of what republicans are talking about and it could seem to work out fine for a couple of years and then set us up for like a real humanitarian disaster down the road particularly because of the inefficacy of these training programs, right? I mean like one of the worst things that you could do I think is attach strict work requirements create a big but totally dysfunctional job training program then have good macroeconomic conditions make the bad job training program look good so then everybody is like this is great right we just instead of giving people a, a handout we're giving them training and and they're getting on their own feet and then you know the economy inevitably hits a, a rough patch. And then suddenly you have this like worthless training program that's never been validated and, you know, like a a huge disaster. And this
2: sounds really similar to what actually played out with welfare, where a lot of the, you know, when they were pursuing the original welfare reforms to add in the work requirement, there was a lot of research, um, something that was being referred to as the Riverside Miracle, this bureaucrat out in California who had gotten a waiver, implemented a work requirement, the economy is booming, people are moving into jobs, and all of a sudden there's a sense of like, oh, this works, that, that if you create a work requirement that this is going to happen. But a few years later, so after the country entirely reworks our welfare system based on the results coming out of this research in California, then you all of a sudden see the economy not doing so great and all that research doesn't seem to hold up and i think that's a really key point that you're making matt that a lot of this depends so much on the economic conditions surrounding it and work work, work training can only get you so far it can get you maybe closer to a job and the research on that in snap is a little bit iffy, but it can't mitigate a a very bad economy where the people near you are not hiring.
0: Well, and, and, and I, I think it's worth kind of pointing out here that talking about the relationship between work and unemployment and SNAP assumes a little bit that the two go together, right? That people who are on SNAP are unemployed, which is like, first of all, most people who are on SNAP are working. Most of the people who aren't working, research has shown are like, we're working and, you know, have just lost their jobs or are about to get back on their feet. There is not a large population of people other than people who have like other severe mental issues, physical issues for whom SNAP is what they're doing as they're permanently unemployed. But additionally, if you Ask the question, okay, what is wrong with quote unquote SNAP now that Republicans want to fix? It's that as the recession has abated and other social safety net programs have kind of shrunk in response with you know there being fewer people on TANF than there were during the height of the Great Recession. There are fewer people getting on unemployment insurance. The SNAP rolls have continued to grow. They're not growing as quickly now as they were during the Great Recession, but they're now a lot bigger than other social safety net programs. So that's why they're being targeted now. But- the reason that's the case is because they're not moving in the same direction the unemployment is moving. So there's a question about why that's the case. Uh, The conservative take on it is that it's because states have expanded SNAP eligibility so much. So a lot of the stuff in here, not just with work requirements but other things, is designed to standardize or keep states essentially from being able to exercise some discretion in how they implement the program. But there's also you know, the angle of maybe people are working, they're just not making enough money through working. They're not working enough hours because they're not allowed to. They're in temp work, et cetera, et cetera. But this version of the bill that simultaneously tries to solve the why is SNAP continuing to grow even though unemployment is shrinking problem also has this workfare provision that assumes that the problem with SNAP is that unemployment is is growing because people are on SNAP instead.
1: Also lurking always in these kind of questions is I think like the dual mission of on the one hand, Republicans want people to work instead of, you know, collecting benefits. But on the other hand, they want to spend less money on programs and you know realistically it's more expensive to administer a well functioning work requirement training in Europe they call active labor market policies like good high quality programs that really attempt to get people into work while they also don't starve while they're on it while you also administer like that would be more expensive Right, I mean the unemployment rate is relatively low nationally but like in Ocean City, New Jersey, there's a 14.3 percent unemployment rate, right? So if you want people who are living in Ocean City, New Jersey to go get a job rather than get Snapchat, you have to do something. Right? I mean I'm not sure exactly what it is you have to do but you either have to create jobs in that community or create transportation networks so they can commute to someplace else or help them move. I mean but you have to do something. You can't just clap your hands, right? And that would cost more than just sort of providing some subsistence and hoping they can muddle through and something will come up at, at, at some point. But the goal always with these kinds of things is to try to spend – less, right? So there's like a lot of new spending on administration in this bill because to do the bureaucracy of the work requirements costs money. And then they're just taking that money out of benefits, right? So even though the scaling up of the SNAP job training is huge in the sense that it's from $30 million to $1 billion, you're like, Assuming you can increase this 30-fold and it will still work even though it's not clear that it works at all, it's also not that much money in in the scheme of things, right? Like that's the the sort of paradox of it that they're not saying here what we want to do is take a huge new chunk of money and put it into helping people get jobs. They're saying we want to take this relatively modest anti-poverty program and just sort of assert that by shifting the money around we're going to make it work better and as we talked about with the medicaid work requirements you know some of this is just large new logistical burdens on people who are currently working right like if you work in a low wage job and you're working 25 hours a week and you have childcare responsibilities you are probably eligible for some snap benefits now you will continue to be eligible for snap benefits under this new program but you're going to have to do a lot of proving that you are eligible, uh, which is going to be a pain, it's possible that you will mess up and you're going to lose your eligibility. I mean there's a there's a philosophical issue here but there's also just like a practical empirical diagnosis. It's like do you think that the big problem in America is that poor people sort of have it too easy, right? Paul Ryan likes to use this metaphor about how the safety net has become a hammock and that just like seems like a telling metaphor to me. It does does not look to me by eyeball. Low-income communities are full of people hanging out on hammocks.
0: Just as there's a question about what is the problem here, there are multiple questions about what does a conservative response to this problem look like? In some regards, this is an economic conservative bill. It's trying to spend less money. It's trying to spend less money on social safety net programs in particular. But that's getting mixed up with the kind of Social conservative, we want an America in which people work, which, as Matt said, implies we are willing to spend money now so that people get back into the workforce. There's some stuff in here about requiring states to have people work with child support enforcement in order to get SNAP benefits, which is part of the, well, you shouldn't be a deadbeat dad. You should ideally live in a two-parent household, and if not, you should at very least be getting financial support. And then there's kind of the federalist angle of, well, we should allow states to do what they want and kind of test those programs, the laboratories of democracy, and figure out from state policies which works best, which is definitely not what the current farm bill is doing insofar as it's doing a lot more to standardize states, both in terms of forcing them to raise the caps for how people can qualify in some cases and forcing them to expand the eligibility requirements in some cases, but to contract them in many more. So you can kind of see here various intellectual threads of the Republican coalition, but it's really hard to say that this is what a social conservative solution or an economic conservative solution looks like. It just ends up this massive muddled
2: mess. Yeah, and I think like one of the other ideological things that gets a little mixed here is that you could see a world in which Democrats were interested in some kind of increased job training. Like you saw this during the TPP debate where you did see, I think it was like um, a dozen or so Democrat senators who were willing to support this TPA, the Trade Promotion Authority.
1: In exchange for extra job training funding.
2: Yes. They they were essentially job training funding is like what got a decent size of Democrats, enough to keep things moving forward for a little while on board with that. But you don't see that same thing happening here for, I think, some of the exact reasons that Matt is pointing out, because of the things you are trading off, because of the work requirement that you're looking at creating for SNAP. You know, there's a agriculture reporter at Politico who has been doing great reporting on this, and she points out that Washington state, which is not a bastion of conservative ideals, it is a state that generally is represented by Democrats in the Senate, has a Democratic governor, that they are the ones who have really— pioneered a lot of the work in SNAP training programs. But it, it is voluntary at this point. Washington doesn't require people to be part of them, but they're kind of the breeding ground for those sort of experiments. So this isn't something, you know, that necessarily cuts across ideological lines. But the idea of layering on top of that this bureaucracy and this work requirement—and again, you know, when I I spend most of my time work requirement-wise talking to people about Medicaid work requirements. And some of the opposition, I think, is definitely ideological, the idea that healthcare should be a right, that this is something super basic that people should not have to work for. But a lot of it's also logistical, this idea that you're going to end up losing people who who are working, but maybe their hours vary a lot week to week. So, you know, they don't have, in the case of the SNAP one, they they don't have 20 hours a week on average for one month, so all of a sudden they're falling off the program. It might average out over three months that so they actually were working 20 hours per week, that it can end up with some pretty unintended consequences and a, a lot of paperwork and bureaucracy. And even if you look at Kentucky, you know, which is working on a Medicaid work requirement, they have estimated it's going to cost more to run this work requirement. And this is without even doing any sort of job training, but just to track, like, who is working and how many hours they're working and get all that paperwork, you know, that is additional bureaucracy for, for the state. So I think I could see a world where Democrats get behind the idea of some kind of job training money, but here, like, the trade-off just does not seem worth it to them. But
1: I, I do want to zero in on, on the point you made about job training when it was linked to trade promotion authority, because I, I think it's important not to get too – This show is called The Weeds, but it's important not to get too sucked into the specific contours of these things, right? Like the broad Republican Party view is that nothing at all should be done to help poor people with any problems, right? When you have a specific conversation, it's like, no, the poor need jobs, not food stamps, right? But like in general, trade promotion authority was something most congressional Republicans thought was good. They thought trade promotion authority would help economic growth. And they were not interested in spending one penny on increased job training in order to get this. Do you want to define for our
2: readers who've forgotten what trade promotion authority was? This was
1: basically to get Trans-Pacific Partnership done. The, The legislative mechanics were complicated, but it was like Democrats then were like, let's kick in some more job training money. Republicans did not want to kick in more job training money. Republicans want to take SNAP money and turn it. Into job training money, but they also, when they talk about transportation bill, they want to take money for buses and they want to get rid of that and put it into highways. When Marco Rubio wanted to have a smaller corporate income tax cut and a bigger uh, child credit, like they were not interested in that. When Paul Ryan briefly floated the idea uh, a couple years ago that he wanted to make EITC more generous, right? That is a program to help poor people that by definition only comes to you if you're working.
0: And was a tax cut.
1: Right. He wanted to do it but only if it could be paid for by cutting other anti-poverty programs, right? So it's like within the universe of a fixed – pool of money. Different Republican members of Congress have different ideas about like what are particularly horrible ways to help poor people versus what are ways to help poor people that they will grudgingly accept. But like the basic idea is that poor people should have no social services. They shouldn't have in-work tax benefits. They shouldn't have transportation assistance. Like they shouldn't have anything, right? Whereas – and it's not because we can't afford it, right? Like They passed a tax cut bill that costs many trillions of dollars and they want to make it permanent and they want to make it bigger, right? I mean sums of money that completely dwarf what we're talking about here are are fine to expend on on business tax cuts, but maybe you have to pay for the tax cuts by taking things away from poor people or maybe taking things away from poor people is like a good in and of itself, but there's just no – There's no dimension in which like helping poor people is a thing that congressional Republicans actually want to do on the merits and that's why – These job training programs, they both get hand wavy and then in a different context, they don't believe in them at all. And they will even give you, right, like a a cliche Republican example of how the federal government is stupid is that the federal government runs all these different job training programs, including many that the GAO says don't work. But like now it's their answer and it's – you know, it's – like, especially with Ezra not here. Like, there's just like a bottomless pool of bad faith coming from, from these people that needs to be understood.
0: So can I throw out one detail of this proposal that like actually it, I think, reinforces your point? I think we need to take a break. Ah, And okay.
2: then we will get to the details.
1: Look, who wants to spend $50 on a t-shirt that only costs $7 to make? I don't. I bet you don't either. And with Everlane, you never have to. Everlane is about never overpaying for quality clothes. They make what they call premium essentials. They use fine materials without traditional markups, and they tell you their real costs so you know you are never overpaying. They want you to know what you're paying for and why, so they're radically transparent about every step in their process from the materials they use, from the ethical factories that they source to. And because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than what traditional retailers, so the clothes look better, they cost less, they last longer. They're exactly what they should be. They're simple, they're stylish, they're made from quality materials, they're durable, it's a good value. It's not too fancy. It's not too weird, but it's nice. It's quality. They got a cashmere crew, 100% human tea, slim fit jeans, straight fit denim. My personal favorite is their twill weekender bag. They just got like incredible durability, build quality, and yet at a good value because they're not doing a lot of middlemen. They're not doing a lot of markups. They're not doing a lot of like crazy branding exercises. They're on podcasts and they're doing good work. Their timeless essentials are what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And you can get free shipping on your first order if you go to everlane.com weeds. That's everlane.com slash weeds. One more time, everlane.com slash weeds. Hello, listeners of The Weeds. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And we're your co-hosts of a new podcast called Displaced from the Vox Media Podcast Network and the International Rescue Committee where Grant and I work. Right now, the world is witnessing the largest displacement crisis since World War II. That
0: is the largest number of people displaced because of conflicts. You've seen it in headlines around Syria, Yemen,
1: and Jordan. And if you want to understand why that is and what can be done about it, listen to Displaced. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the weeds.
0: So yeah, so I... I'm not willing to endorse the Madagalasius thesis of bottomless <laughs> bad faith, but I do think it's it's worth noting that the way this proposal is structured, you know, as Matt and Sarah were talking about, there are all these onerous documentation requirements in order to prove that you're working 20 hours a week. If you don't do that for a month and you're, suppo- you know, you're in the pool of people who are supposed to, that first quote unquote violation results in you being locked out of SNAP for a year. The second quote-unquote violation is three years, which is kind of ludicrous. You know, if, if you're trying to do this as a job promotion program, you know, even if you grant the idea that they're not employed for a month just because they're like relying on SNAP instead, there's then 12 more months during which, A, they have no SNAP benefits, and B, They have no incentive to find a job. If you're saying that SNAP is supposed to be their incentive to find a job, and then you take away that incentive, the idea that someone is actually going to be incentivized to get and keep a job because they will lose benefits for a year if they don't may sound really good in theory. But in practice, it's much more likely to just remove the carrot from a bunch of people than to actually present them with the carrot and stick every month that they would need to get moving.
1: Yeah. So... I think that's right. I, I think it's also worth talking about the the broader political linkages in this, right? I mean, there's a reason that this is called the the Farm Bill rather than the food stamps bill, right? And it's that the the longer legislative history of this vehicle is that it it was primarily an agricultural subsidies bill, right? And then over time, farm subsidies continue to be a thing in America, but a lot of them exist on the trade policy side rather than on the direct spending side. Food stamps has grown as a program. And I think one reason it's grown is not exactly that it's liberals' favorite idea in the world or, you know, the thing that Democrats think is absolutely the best way to help poor people, but that they had a coalition politics concept around it, which is that food stamps are not – Cash assistance, you can only spend them in certain kinds of stores. You can only spend them on certain kinds of things. But they are very flexible and everybody – every household in America wants to buy a bunch of SNAP eligible stuff usually at stores that would take snap. So it functions sort of like cash. It's like it's like almost cash, but because it is linked to groceries, like big grocery store chains including Walmart like this program and agribusiness interests also like it. And so that has been the sort of the the politics of SNAP that cash welfare became politically untenable. SNAP is almost as good as cash for people who want a flexible social assistance program. But it has a more powerful lobbying coalition behind it that includes retailers and includes farm state interests. And because farm state interests particularly, at least traditionally, have had sway in the Republican coalition, SNAP has been bipartisan. George W. Bush's administration increased SNAP eligibility as part of compassionate conservatism. So this kind of lumbered forward as a way to help poor people that could get done. And I think you know one of the big things you're you're seeing with this bill is not not that this is going to be enacted into law exactly as written, but that that coalitional logic has fallen apart and that there's no particular reason in the future for liberals to pursue the goal of helping poor people through the specific mechanics of food stamps as opposed to You know, anything else that you might do, that this is not like a bipartisan cause. The the Republicans on the Agriculture Committee want to make this program much stingier in a lot of ways. Paul Ryan wants to, you know, the Trump administration seems bought in. There's no, there's nobody on the Republican side who's like standing up saying like, no, 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 like food stamps are great. Like we should totally not cut that. The whole conservative, you know, movement is bought into the theory that like, this is more or less the same as cash welfare and we want to treat it more or less the same way.
2: Yeah, there was a really great article that um, Marion Nestle, who's a of food politics writer and professor at NYU. She wrote about uh, a few years ago, she decided she was going to try and teach the um, 2014 Farm Bill in a class. And she thought this would be a great way for her students to learn about agriculture policy. And she immediately regrets this decision because the Farm Bill has become such an amalgamation of things that really have very little to do with farms. It's become this kind of mashup of SNAP benefits, which are taking up at this point 80% of the bill, the other 20% going to a whole variety of programs, with no and, and you know, this was true when Marian Nessel was writing about this, you know, at the last authorization four years ago or five years ago, um, where it, it did not seem to articulate like a clear theory of like, here's what we want out of American agriculture. Um and, and you could write that bill, right? Like you could write a bill, you know, she asked her graduate students to say. Well, what would be the goals if you were like writing something called the farm bell? And they'd say, well, it's probably like that, you know, people are eating healthy and there's enough food, you know, for for Americans to consume. That that seems like a plausible theory. And I loved um when she's kind of trying to write about how Frankenstein all of this is, there was this one passage in her essay that really stood out to me that I wanted to share where she writes about this tension as it shows up between the subsidies in the Farm Bill versus what the USDA, which is also regulated under the Farm Bill, suggests people should be eating. And this is in It's My Plate Food guides. like when you see those diagrams in schools or whatever that, you know, your plate should be X amount healthy vegetables and like a very amount of sugar. So she looks at like what that plate would look like if you were using the actual subsidies in the Farm Bill. So she writes, if you were to create a MyPlate meal that matched the government subsidies, you would get quite the lecture from your doctor. More than three-quarters of your plate would be taken up by a massive corn fritter. 80% of benefits go to corn, grain, and soy oil. You'd have a Dixie cup of milk. Dairy gets 3%. A hamburger the size of a half dollar. Livestock, 2%. Two peas, because fruits and vegetables get 0.45%. And an after-dinner cigarette, because tobacco gets 2%. Oh, and a really big linen napkin because cotton gets 3% to dab your lips on. And I'll put this link in show notes um, if you missed any of that. But I think it really – a somewhat cutesy way with a giant corn fritter to illustrate some real tensions that show up in the farm bill and kind of like how this log rolling approach leads to a bill that doesn't really articulate a clear theory of like what we actually want. Like what we want our farms to produce is totally out of whack with what the same agencies are telling Americans that is are, that these are the things that would be healthy for you to be eating.
0: Yeah. I think that that kind of inconsistency exists on the food stamp side as well, right? Like when food stamps were created as a program, it was during a time when the biggest problem with food in low-income communities was actual hunger, right? It was insufficient calories, malnutrition. That is no longer the case. There is There are lots of ways to get lots of cheap calories. There is a much bigger problem in low-income communities with obesity, with people not getting the right calories. And giving people money to buy food doesn't itself help with that. There are various ways that SNAP tries to incentivize people to eat right some of these Republican proposals actually would subsidize retailers or like reimburse retailers for making it easier for people on food stamps to buy fruit and vegetables and milk. But in general, it's a program that assumes that people, if they didn't have food stamps, would go hungry instead of the biggest problem is making sure that people, you know, especially children, have the right nutrition to not develop health problems in later life. And I understand that this is not a problem with Congress, per se. It's a problem with how Americans in general think about poverty. You know, you think about like true poverty is like, oh, children who are starving, people who can't get enough to eat, even though the actual image of poverty in the U.S. isn't somebody who can't get enough to eat, who doesn't have any cell phone or anything like that. It's somebody who can get enough to eat but isn't eating healthily, is setting themselves up to spend a lot for a lot of health problems in later life. That's not politically sympathetic. That's an image that makes it sound like they are making poor choices. And it's hard to create policy that addresses that problem that's also politically palatable at the same time you kind of have the idea of farm subsidies sounds great right like farmers are important it's a good idea to be able to make sure that farmers are producing the food America needs except that as sarah was saying with some of these you know meat and cotton subsidies And the way that grain subsidies are structured, most farm subsidies are designed for industrial agriculture. They're not designed for food that people are then going to eat. They're designed for things that are going to become feed for animals, you know, the American cotton industry, that kind of thing. So in both cases, there's this disconnect between the policies that are actually – you know, needed or endorsed and the kind of idealized vision of the farm bill that people like to think exists when they're log rolling this through.
1: Right. Well, and I think, you know, within SNAP, what, what it seems to me is, has gone on is that there's sort of two different programs at war with each other inside SNAP, right? And one is the one that's in the name, right? It's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which implies to me, I mean, I think it's their name, a, a modest you know, i.e. supplemental program that is aimed at nutrition assistance. So it's like you got somebody and they're OK. They're like basic survival needs are met. But maybe they need a little supplemental nutritional assistance. And that really seems like it should be a voucher to buy fresh vegetables, etc., maybe. But – you know, quite restrictive, as you you sometimes see it in proposals to make SNAP. But SNAP isn't really a supplemental nutrition assistance program. It's the cornerstone of anti-poverty assistance in the United States, right? So, if there was some other program that was giving a subsistence amount of money to people, then there could be a like modest nutritionally focused program to make sure that in addition to not starving, you have the ability to get healthy fruits and vegetables for your family. But SNAP is like serving serving dual roles at that time. Then on the the agricultural side, the problem with a lot of government industrial policy type things in general is that the tendency is for – the the rich to get richer, right? That US agriculture is a global superstar in churning out corn and soy for um, animal feed purposes and for creating high fructose corn syrup, soybean oil, you know, different kind of like agricultural byproducts. We're really, really good at that. We've got good land for it. And so because we're so good at it, there's like a mighty – Lobby around that, and so it keeps agricultural policy oriented toward it. When, in some idealized sense, you would want government policy to do the opposite, right? To sort of take what we're weaker at and, and try to promote that kind of thing. And but then the the political economy of it is is sort of bleak because if you look at the the corn and soy belt in the United States stretches across a whole bunch of different states, whereas the vegetable belt is very heavily like just in California, and of course. California is a big state, and a lot of people live in California. But the Senate doesn't care how many people live in in California, um, and they have only a, a couple allies. Um, whereas the the sort of staple grains have incredible senatorial clout, and there's like probably nothing, you know, that can ever be done about that, right? I mean, if you ever just have like a straight up political fight between states that grow vegetables and states that grow lots of corn and soy, like corn and soy is always, always, always going to win. And so I think it's sort of fun to noodle about like, what would a great farm bill look like? But I I don't know that there's any actual there there.
0: I don't know. I think that the way... I would put this counterfactual that might actually be, you know, sharper than noodling is what would a Trumpist farm bill look like? If you take Republicans at their word right now, they're not the party of agribusiness, right? They're the party of rural communities that have been ignored by coastal elites and that now are supposed to be, you know, reclaiming America and the American government as their own, which is not actually consistent with a bill that thinks of quote-unquote the rural leg as giving massive agribusiness subsidies. So I I would, you know, I don't have the right answer to this. I feel like Sarah is probably the person in this room who's done the most reporting on actual rural communities, but you know, I'm wondering what would a bill to invest in rural communities and bring them up to speed look like? Would that even have anything to do with agriculture or food or like are we talking about something that looks nothing like the farm bill and the quote-unquote rural agenda that we have right now?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good question. Like, the rural community that i spent most time in, um, mostly for reporting on the Affordable Care Act and how it's going there, I don't really talk to people who are like, bring back the family farm. Like, it seems like there's a lot of infrastructure needed, but a lot of it is not agricultural infrastructure. It seems like that ship almost, and you know, like I'm talking from a pretty limited vantage point. So I don't want to speak to like, you know, as some like JD Vance scion of rural America. Um, but the communities that I have been in, you know, the desire seems to be, I guess I spend a lot of time talking to people about their healthcare for like some like basic standard of healthcare, like that would be a huge help to the people that I talk to. Um, and some kind of like economic development. But like I don't hear much like bring back the farms. Well, but I
1: mean this is this is an important sort of piece of this, right, that like rural is a hazy yes. conceptual category. And if you look at the core farm belt of the United States, right, you know, Iowa, Nebraska, these are actually quite prosperous states. I mean, whether or not the residents of them also feel looked down upon by coastal elites, right? But then if you look at upstate New York, or eastern Kentucky, or the Mississippi Delta. like These are places that are also rural, but they are not well-suited to large-scale, highly efficient staple crop manufacture. And their economic conditions are totally, totally different. And the USDA as an agency, I think in a practical sense, like its clients are the successful agribusiness regions of the United States, not the struggling rural areas and that's – again, it's like in France, right? One of the major goals of agricultural policy is to maintain the aesthetic qualities of rural France. Um, But that's very much like – it really like cuts against so much of the American ethos to say we're going to spend money on having uh, like cutesy farms in upstate New York and rural New England even though they're not economically – efficient and like, you know, scaling that kind of idea up, I mean, it holds like a sort of appeal to me. Like I also enjoy cutesy farms, but it's like it's so hard for me to imagine the United States ever really going in that direction. And like the farm committees and the the bureaucracy, like it's all it's all geared to the really successful part of American agriculture, which is like really exporting soybeans and other staple grains.
0: So you're saying that you can't unfry the
2: corn fritter? Indeed. <laughs> All right. With that, I think uh, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to get to research and heroin.
1: Are you paying attention? Not just to this podcast, but to everything, everything in the world. If you're like me, when you're not listening to podcasts, you're reading about the latest ideas and issues, often in your favorite magazines, and you can get all the magazines that matter with Texture. What is it? It's an app that has over 200 top magazines all in one place. A bunch of leading publishers come together, they work with this company, and so with a single app, you get hundreds of the best magazines in the world, complete issues and back issues for Time, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, tons of other stuff, all at your fingertips, and if you lighter, they've got People, they've got Cosmo, they've got Entertainment Weekly, they've got some great Canadian magazines for weirdos like me. Texture delivers the best of both worlds with newsworthy stories and relaxing entertainment anytime, anywhere. They're the best place to find quality journalism, beautiful photos, in-depth interviews, perspectives that show you all sides of the story. If you want to get that great magazine journalism without having huge piles of stuff on your coffee table, Texture is the way. You dive deep into the issues you care about today with Texture. It's usually $9.99 a month, which is frankly an amazing deal if you think about it. 200 magazines for $9.99 a month. But they're giving our listeners a free trial. So to start a seven-day free trial, you go to texture.com slash weeds. Go to texture.com slash Weeds to start reading the latest issues of your favorite magazines today. Texture.com slash Weeds.
2: Okay, so the paper we're talking about today, it is called How the Reformulation of OxyContin Ignited the Heroin Epidemic, which kind of gives you a sense of the conclusion that the authors are going to come to. Um, It is from economists William Evans, Ethan Lieber, and Patrick Power. And Herman um, Lopez did a nice write up of this study for Vox that we'll put in show notes. So this looks at a particular moment in the history of the opioid epidemic in August 2010, when Purdue, the manu- manufacturer of OxyContin, releases what is supposed to be a new abuse deterrent version of their drug that has been, you know, pretty clearly abused um, by patients. The original argument by Purdue was that this drug was a long-release drug, that people wouldn't abuse it because it's released over the course of 12 hours. It turns out you can get around that by crushing it up, snorting it, injecting it. So they create this new abuse-resistant OxyContin that is going to kind of turn to mush. If you try to dissolve it in water, it's a lot harder to crush. And what they find in this paper is it seems um, like—I'll just read from their conclusion— is that they believe that the new abuse deterrent formulation led many consumers to substitute to an inexpensive alternative, heroin. Um, They find that opioid consumption stops rising in August 2010, heroin deaths begin climbing the following month, and growth in heroin deaths was greater in areas with greater pre-reformulation access to heroin and opioids. So essentially, the kind of top-line conclusion is that each prevented opioid death was replaced with a heroin death. And I think it's like a little bit of a hard paper to wrap your mind around. I think, you know, when um, Irman was talking to drug policy experts, they don't think it was wrong for Purdue to reformulate, um, to create this abuse deterrent OxyContin. It is not bad to make it harder to abuse this drug. It seems like it did, in fact, lead to fewer people abusing this drug, but it shows, like, how it feels like a very whack-a-mole situation where you tamp down on one thing and then easy access to heroin means more people are turning to that drug. You know, again, I think one of the useful things Armand does in that article is, like, thinks about the alternative. Like, is the alternative we just don't get— we let people abuse opioids and, like, that just continues forever? It doesn't seem like the alternative of not deterring abuse is a great one, but I think it speaks to— you know, how interconnected all these different parts of the opioid epidemic are and how difficult it is to, you know, create a solution that just tackles one tiny arm of that. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that as useful as this report is, and especially as useful as it is, as we continue to think of the opioid crisis as a prescription crisis, it's not like this was unforeseeable. Like, Drug reform advocates have been saying for ages and ages that there is a balloon theory of illicit drug consumption that when you crack down on one type of drugs, consumption will just shift to another. And that's certainly – that's true even across categories of drugs. It's certainly true among different drugs that serve the same purpose like OxyContin and heroin. So the idea of making a particular drug harder to abuse should not have led anyone to think that people weren't going to switch – I think that it solves a different problem, right? It solves the problem of prevention of new users rather than how do you have people who are already addicted to opioids? How do you deal with them? There should have been something else is the conclusion that Hermann draws from the paper that I think is legit. There should have been something else to address the people who were already addicted to make sure they didn't turn to heroin. But... The mental model of the opioid crisis that we have still, even though it's now a heroin crisis and has been for some time, and at this point is now even more a fentanyl crisis, is somehow still that it's this problem with people prescribing too many opioids. The way that Donald Trump puts it is someone goes into the hospital and they come out addicted to opioids, which is not exactly how it
2: works. But Which was closer to the model a decade ago. Right, exactly. Like, right like When now.
0: nobody was paying attention to yeah. it, when everybody was paying attention to meth instead. Like... The kind of five-year lag that's going on on national drug policy is not great under the best of circumstances. But what this paper indicates is that if we keep trying to solve the opioid crisis of 2013 and 2018, we may end up exacerbating the opioid
1: crisis of 2018. Right. I mean, I think this is one of a, a number of papers. It, it just speaks to the, I think, really perverse you know, reluctance of Americans to embrace uh Opioid substitute medications, right? That it, it, it was as if the, the mentality in the United States is almost as if we like didn't want to give people a cholesterol medication because we thought that that would disincentivize, you know, better diet and exercise, and that like the real solution is for everybody to eat healthy and to exercise all the time. So we shouldn't be handing out you know lipitor and, and and this other stuff to people and you know i could see it i mean we should we should all eat better and exercise more i guess and probably people addicted to opioids should just stop or something. I don't know. But, you know, obviously, if you were going to come in with like a big measure to make it harder for people to abuse their prescription opioids, the question you should ask is like, well, if this works and they stop abusing prescription opioids, what is it that we think they are going to do, right? And you got to like show up with like buckets full of methadone or something to like give a good answer to that question because otherwise it's like a a lot of them do heroin. And as Daryl was saying, this wasn't exactly unknown at the time. It was just nobody wanted to bother, right? And and that's, I just think, a a huge problem. And, And I think we now have this secondary problem that everybody wants to keep talking about The opioids crisis, because I think it sounds nicer. I mean, there's at least a big idea out there that we are handling this in a more generous and tenderhearted way than earlier drug crises, possibly because – The victims are whiter possibly because the victims are more rural and I think some of it is because of this notion that like the drug companies are the bad guys instead of people being addicts and that's all nice. But like we've seen huge spikes in drug overdose rates in a lot of urban areas, huge spikes in drug overdose deaths among African-Americans recently just the incredible dominance now of heroin and fentanyl as like the things that are killing people and it continues to grow, you know, and like we we need to grapple with what's actually happening even though it's a little less warm and fuzzy at this point than the idea that people were being, you know, mistreated by by doctors. But, like, there's a really, really big heroin addiction and heroin overdose problem in the United States that calls for, you know, some fairly urgent actions uh, because the the costs of this are extraordinary and they're rising really, really, really fast. And this kind of, like, tinkering around with the OxyContin is, is not going to help.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think it's worth pointing out that behind the warm and fuzzy rhetoric, like the tools that the government has to deal with drug crises are still enforcement tools. And in practice, it's not exactly like heroin addicts and dealers are being, you know, they're not being treated with kid gloves. It's just that there's also this angle of industry directed trying to cut down on prescription stuff going on. It's a both and approach. But Fundamentally, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. It's really hard to talk to people who are in communities that are affected by addiction and say anything other than it's not your uncle's fault that he's addicted. It's, you know, that it's your relatives, your neighbors are still good people, even though they're addicted to drugs. That's not something that most people are willing to grant. And therefore, you have to create a narrative where there's another villain instead of saying, this is a social problem. There aren't any villains. There aren't any heroes. But it's important for everybody that we make sure that this is taken care of so this doesn't become a drain on relatives' resources, so it doesn't become a crime problem, so it doesn't become a homelessness problem. That's not something – because we're so used to thinking of drugs are something black people do. As right. they, like That's not, that's not a, a conceptual leap people are willing to take when it's an actual problem in front of them. They would love to think that there are cartels that are feeding their relatives these drugs. There are corporations that are feeding their relatives these drugs. It's just if we actually did want to take a compassionate approach, that's where we'd start. Not there's some other villain, but what if this isn't a story with a villain at all?
2: Well, I think a lot of the research I read on opioids, this makes this paper makes me think of another one that Ezra and I did a full episode on looking at access to medication-assisted treatment and a very controversial paper that suggested that this might have increased opioid overdoses and opioid um, deaths in certain parts of the country by making it less risky, essentially, to use opioids. And the upshot of that paper, if you got past the very fierce... Twitter battle that was happening around and the upshot of this paper really seemed to me to be like, we have to have some alternative that isn't another, that isn't heroin or that isn't fentanyl. That one of the things they point out in that other paper, and I'll link to this episode in our show notes, is that you definitely did not see that uptick in mortality in the places that had pretty robust access to inpatient, outpatient sort of treatment, places that a lot more treatment you know, seem to do better when access to medication ex- expanded treatment whereas even more expanded. And I think Irvine does in his piece, which is helpful, is to think about, like, someone who is abusing opioids, who is crushing them up, all of a sudden this abuse deterrent um, formulation of OxyContin comes on the market. You can see, you know, a decision going either way. You could see a decision, well, heroin's cheap and, you know, that's a lot easier to abuse, so I'm going to go start buying heroin. Or, can't abuse this anymore maybe you know and things aren't going great like maybe it's time to think about treatment but that second option is often very difficult to access if the treatment facilities are full if there's as you know Matt is mentioning if there's a lot of stigma about going to a methadone clinic um if your insurance isn't going to pay for that kind of treatment you know there are all these obstacles that are set up that are you know not cheap to fix you know we'd have to spend more money on medication-assisted treatment. We have to spend more money on, on outpatient and inpatient treatment. Like, these things do cost money, although, you know, there's an argument there's a much longer cost to society of letting this crisis go on longer. But I think, like, when I think of, like, the body of opioid research I read recently, a lot of it seems to highlight to me how short we are following falling on treatment options and how, you know, that leads people to make, you know, I, I wouldn't say rational decisions, but it makes it a lot easier to continue abusing opioids when the treatment options just aren't there.
0: The bottom line for both this and our Farm Bill discussion, going back to a point you were making a bunch earlier, Sarah, is that... You can't design policy around what you don't want to see happen in America. You have to design policy around what the America is you would like to see. And as frou-frou as that sounds and as easy as it is to go wrong with that when you don't take unintended consequences into account, you can't just say the status quo is bad. We're taking the status quo away. We don't have anything to replace it with. We're not sure what our goal is And expect things to continue in any kind of direction that you would consider positive because you can't rely on yourself to understand if you take one option away, what are the alternatives as they present themselves to the people who are actually affected.
1: And looping it all the way back around, I mean, you got to ask yourself, with some of these treatment options and things, right, if there's somebody who's not working and they are getting some kind of public assistance maybe and they are addicted to drugs, and they could really use some treatment, is what we really need for them to do is to be made ineligible for Medicaid benefits and other things like that on the grounds that they're a non-working uh, drug addict who has a lot of problems. Like, I'm not sure what, like what is solved exactly there. And, and I mean, I guess I know what's solved, right? I mean, a, a lot of this driving both the impulse toward work requirements and the impulse to not uh, want to do You know, medication and treatment like that is this like paranoia that like one dollar will be spent like accidentally on somebody who is unworthy, right? And you would rather see infinite problems like bloom rather than than set like a a hardworking taxpayer's dollar go to somebody who who really doesn't deserve it. Like that's not a good way to solve problems right like it's hard to get people off drugs it's hard to get people into treatment even when the treatment is available right and the idea of being stingier with help in general and then hoping that like tweaking how the pills work is is going to get us out of this it's not very realistic
0: who knew public policy could be so complicated <sighs>
1: Nobody. What's not complicated, though, is recommending the weed to your friends. I feel like this is the second
0: week in a row you've done that segue.
1: (laughs) Ah, damn it. Okay, what is complicated is coming up with new new segues. (laughs) new (laughs) ways end shows. It's very difficult. We're going to work harder on it. We're all going to lose our SNAP benefits unless we come up with more creative ways to end the episodes. Um, It's tough love, but it's going to make us all better off in the end, I think. So thanks to uh, Griffin Tanner, our engineer. Thanks to Bridget Armstrong, our producer. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to all of you for listening. And the Weeds will be back on Friday.